0: Hi, and welcome back to the Mob Mentality Show. I'm Chris Lucian and my co-host is Austin Chadwick. And today we have Stephen Baker uh, to talk with us about living documentation, free and open source software, remote work, rants on modern computer computing. computing. Uh, and so, Stephen, maybe you can introduce yourself and uh, and we can kind of get into the passion after that.
1: Hey, uh, thanks for that. Uh, yeah, so I'm Stephen Baker. Um, I uh, do to these days I do, uh, coaching and agile coaching and things like that. Um, uh, I always end up writing my own tools for things like testing and stuff like that. So, um, that's taken up a lot of, a lot of, uh, time in the past. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I just like, uh, I like using computers to make life easier and, uh, the agile methodologies kind of fit with that. And it's uh it so it's it's been a good place to 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 hang out all right very cool yeah. well welcome to the
0: show and uh maybe Thanks. we can kind of get into the first topic of uh living documentation
1: yeah so uh living documentation is um something that i started thinking about recently uh because um uh there was a client that we were working with that had um in a heavily regulated industry that needed, you know, uh, uh to follow specifications. And, uh, we, uh, a friend of mine and I turned to, you know, how, how do we, what are the tools for solving these problems? And I told him a story about a startup that I worked at a lot of years ago, a fintech startup where we had a cucumber test suite and we just wrote the cucumber scenarios as if they were documentation describing the way that a user would go through the system. And then we added some tooling. It was a Ruby on Rails app. So we added some tooling to take some screenshots and stuff. And, uh, and we found that we could then just automatically generate a a user manual. And, uh, and I was telling uh, my friend Perry about this. And he said, I love this idea of living documentation. It's amazing. We should do something with it. And I said, well, but it's, that's a cool. First of all, that's a cool name, and I'm using it. And second, it's kind of already done. Um, the RSpec documentation has been done in this way for many years. the The documentation for RSpec, if you go to the RSpec website, rspec.info, um, the documentation for it is generated from the uh, the cucumber uh, test suite. And uh, and it's a really amazing thing to have executable documentation that sort of verifies itself. Um, and there's a whole bunch of uh, interesting stuff in there. So that's one of the things I'm thinking about lately, and uh, uh, I'm kind of enjoying looking at things from the perspective of the user. It's helpful.
2: Yeah. <laughs> oh, who cares about those people? Yeah, <laughs> those users, <right? laughs> Pesky users getting in the way. Um, and I, I think uh, living documentation is something uh, that was kind of part of my extreme programming journey uh, when I learned uh, Learned about it, and I've been addicted to it ever since because I think I spent uh, ten years before that feeling all the pains of not having the executable part of the documentation. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if you're if it's executable, then you can know if it's out of sync, right? <laughs> which, right. Which what I found in my previous kind of more waterfall or kind of Scrummer fall days was that. We, any documentation we came up with it was a great capture of that moment but it just became out of sync so quickly <laughs> yeah so, um and so once once you make it executable and fast oh i've been heavily addicted to it um yeah and um yeah and you mentioned rspec what is rspec uh,
1: so rspec is a i mean we we called it a, a bdd framework for ruby um uh, that i created back in like 90 uh, uh sorry uh, 2004 2005 ish um, and basically what it is it, it's a DSL for for testing back then we were saying BDD a lot. I have different opinions that aren't important about you know the words we call things. Um, and uh, I was I was teaching TDD back in the sort of early 2000s. And I always I, I would often get brought in by the person with the checkbook who said, I want my people to learn this skill and say, so, you know, you're, you're you're teaching a class to a bunch of people who are you know, being told to be there and every you'll always have, you know, in every in every class, you'll have like this one smart arse who thinks, you know, hey, I'm we can't test something that doesn't exist. So therefore, the entire premise is flawed. and I'm not going to lis- listen to you anymore. Exactly. And so I wanted to take the word test out of testing. Because people were getting hung up on it, at least in my teaching. Maybe I maybe I just attract, uh, you know, those kinds of uh, unreasonable people. But uh, I kept coming up. So I wanted to build tooling um, to remove the word test. And back then, Dan North was talking about uh, behavior-driven development and uh, started make, working on uh, JBehave. And I did some work with Aslak Helisoy, um, who's one of the founders of the Cucumber Project. And they started sort of introducing me to these ideas. And I said, well, wait a minute, Ruby is a is a, a, a rich, expressive language. We ought to be able to make, make better tools for this. And so what came out of RSpec, and if you look at, if you, I don't know how much Ruby or how uh, steeped in the Ruby world you are, but somewhere on the order of like 70 to 80% of Ruby projects use RSpec, um, even if they have to go out of their way to use it. So the idea caught on. Um, I used it for the first time by choice about uh six weeks ago um uh, and I created about 15 years ago so that that was it was you know I don't warm up to new technology that fast um <laughs> and Even so that you're responsible for <laughs> that's right but the cool thing that came out of our spec wasn't uh you know Ruby testing tools or whatever because I I work in eight to ten languages a day so the cool thing that came out of it was what I'm calling the describe it pattern. When we start talking about software, instead of saying test case and te- you know, test suite, and now you have to learn a whole bunch of uh, amazing domain knowledge to be able to test. You can, what if we just write it out like like English? Here's what, we, describe, what are we describing? Okay, and it does what? And we write these things out and they that idea is not new either because there's no such thing as a new idea i just you know was standing i was standing in the right place with my brain open um and that idea came from one of the things that i think uh chris stevenson did years ago called agile docs or test docs and it would run a java test suite and it would take your method names and turn them into sentences based on the capitalization and it would write out a list of what the software did and then um and at the same time, Brian Merrick was talking about example-driven development. The test suite is an example of how to use the software. And so all of these ideas sort of came together and we got a bit of a new testing language out of it. And that's, uh, um, yeah, that, that was pretty cool.
2: Nice, nice. Yeah, and I've really enjoyed the switch. Uh, uh, some, some programming languages and frameworks make it easy to use the describe it um, style. But what I love about it is... It like you just said, you can write it in normal English, right? And that is the test name (laughs) as opposed to what, because what always happened before is, um, and it wasn't too bad where you would put like a a really nice name in the name of the test. And then the class was almost like the describe, I guess, or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. But what often happened is what I noticed is that sometimes people would Try to add English to that, and then it would be like a comment above it. Now you have two things you need to keep in sync, and you have the sync problem again, right? And so, right. Um, so it, it eliminates the duplication of what does this mean in the domain, <laughs> right? Yeah. The, the implementation details to a certain degree will be in the code when you read it, but having that nice English name across the top is like, why would this matter to a, a user, right? Or, you know, um, or what would the, what, how does this impact them? And, um, it's been really good because it's way more obvious that it should be domain user like, um, which helps. Like for example, when I'm in a mob with uh, with a team, to be like, okay, so this is the part where we say more that kind of thing, as opposed to, uh, you know, does HTTP yada 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 technical detail, right? Um, and so, right. Um, I, I think it, even though it's a small shift in some ways it leads to big gains um, if teams capitalize on it. <laughs> um, yeah. Because I've also seen people write in there. We were just talking about that in my mob where uh, in the describe it, they'll just put something like, oh, correctly asserts parameters for HTTP call. And it's kind of like, oh, we're kind of missing the point <laughs> of what yeah. that's supposed to be about, you know. Um, but
1: Yeah. 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 Um, I, I, have a, I have an interesting story about how, sort yeah. of uh with that I, I shortly after RSpec came out we started uh using it on a on a, a, a ad delivery platform and uh i have i've apologized a lot uh, but it was a very large ad delivery platform if you run an ad blocker today it's definitely listed in your in your inner block history it was a very large <laughs> uh, massive scale um and uh, we wrote it in ruby on rails and we used uh rspec i didn't choose it somebody else on the team chose it and we were using that and we were for the filtering logic which is the complex part of a of an ad delivery app where it does the ad selection they would write out they would send us an email and we would just copy and paste the email into a ruby file and break it up into describe and it and 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 so on and so on um and uh and and one day one of the salespeople, the ad salespeople, came down and was just sort of asking a question and was looking over my shoulder and saw my screen and she said oh um uh if i'm looking at the filtering that's wrong that's not those aren't the right rules for the thing we were just talking about and i said what are you talking about and she points on my screen and she's pointing at the ruby code in rspec on my screen saying it looks to me like this calculation is wrong now she had never seen code before Um, uh, she was the director of the sales department. And I said, well, this is, this is amazing. This is something that we need to capture. This is, you know, hardcore interaction around the requirements of the feature. This is awesome. We need to do more of this. And so we started inviting the salespeople to read over, uh, the test suite periodically, um, to make sure that we got it right and they could, and that's the power of DSLs, really.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's funny, this is a little bit tangential but, uh, uh years ago I was I was being asked for kind of like a, a Gantt chart of like, what have you done like recently? And so I, I, <clears throat> I created a project called Gherkin to Gantt. And what it did is it took Gherkin scenarios and converted it into a Gantt chart by reading backward through the uh, commit history to find when the when the scenario made it into the or was first passing from when it didn't exist yet. And so you, you had like all these like, oh, this started working, then this started working, then this started working. So there's an open source project out there called Gherkin to Gant that will read backward through your Gherkin scenarios. And I I actually, I upgraded it for, I I, I put a provider in there for ja, Jasmine describe it blocks. So it also does like, if it's Jasmine, I I, uh, I don't know, it, probably another provider would have to be written for Ruby, but you can Gantt out all of the describe it's <laughs> that are in there as well.
1: Oh, that's badass yeah, i like yeah. that a
0: lot funny yeah it's kind of like a born out of necessity and you're like i don't want to deal with like you know putting together a gantt chart and a historic gantt chart in the spreadsheet somewhere this is much better so yeah yeah, yeah that's great yeah <laughs> and one thing i love
2: about uh the describe it and that pattern is the ability to Capture that knowledge right away. Kind of that moment you were talking about, where someone is looking over your shoulder, Stephen. Where, whenever we're you know adding a feature, fixing a bug, um, refactoring or something, as soon as we learn something, <laughs> like mm-hmm. get it get it into the code, into something uh, that's executable like that. Because if it's executable, then we know like, hey, this piece of knowledge will be delivered to someone at the moment they need it, right? Like a failing test. (laughs) Or they're about to add a feature and they're kind of, uh, you know, looking around in the area where they're about to add it, right? Like, uh, so, and and I just love that kind of like automated delivery service of knowledge, like, boom, here you go. (laughs) This is something you need to know when you made this change. And, um, And I think anytime, uh, the knowledge isn't captured in the code. I, I get nervous because <laughs> I'm just yeah. like, it's it's going to be gone. It's gone. It's you know, and unless we capture, it's going to lose it. <laughs> it's gone. Or yeah. we're capturing it in somewhere where it's painful to dig out, right? Like you're you're searching, you know, whether it's through you know documents, files, you know, email, drawings, all that kind of stuff, uh, which is all very helpful in the in, in the moment. But if it's not executable, it's a uh, very high risk of being gone
1: <laughs> yeah yeah and and some of these ideas like the idea that we're, we're capturing knowledge in one place uh right now we're onboarding some people on a on a on a project um where we we mob 100 of the time and we're and we're bringing and we're bringing some new folks on um and by the way it is so easy to onboard people when you're mobbing yeah uh every person we we, we have yet to add somebody to the team that's not committing code within a couple of hours um on the first day. It's yeah. just it's beautiful. Um, but when you're when you're growing the team, you have you find out all of the holes in your documentation, right? What's what's missing from the README? Uh what stuff is stuck in one person's brain? Because you know we're we're trying to, you know, this is when the, the the um the largest amount of knowledge transfer happens. And if you've got it embedded in your test suite and if you've got it or if you've got it embedded in in um, you know in your your uh, behavior descriptions or your feature descriptions and things like that, then it's really amazing. Um, so the I, I really like that idea of sort of capturing you know our current understanding mm-hmm. uh, of of the system. And then you know the kind of the point behind living documentation is especially when you're in a client relationship and somebody says, hey, how do I you know how do I use this new feature? Well, it's right there in the test suite. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that I'm working on now actually runs Cucumber in three different browsers and records a video and then turns it into an animated GIF. So you can stick the GIF in the docu- in the output of the Gherkin. Um, so it basically runs through all the scenarios in my Ruby on Rails app and puts uh, videos of people doing the feature. Um, so um, it's, yeah, it's kind of fun. And I think it's, I think it's helpful because I don't, really enjoy writing documentation, but I value good documentation, so. Kind
2: of nice. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Right on, right on. Cool. Yeah. Oh, go
0: ahead, Chris. No, uh, I was probably gonna say the same thing you might have, which is maybe uh, maybe we can transition on to uh, free and open source software and talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, so how much do we need to nice. pay per month to use our spec? And, and I'm just kidding.
1: <laughs> 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 it's, it's funny. Um, the, I mean, RSpec is easily the you know the most popular thing I've ever I've ever released, and it's and it's licensed in a way that I don't really like. Um, it's <laughs> permissive, because everything else in uh, in the Ruby community, one of the important things about sort of Foss licensing is that you follow the community norms, yeah. and in the Ruby community, we tend to use the MIT license for things. Because that's Ruby's license. And so RSpec is licensed that way. Um, but no, I've been a, a free and open source software nerd for a, a, a lot of years. Um, I, I think I was like eleven or twelve years old when we became a Debian developer. And I sort of grew up around that in the in the open source community in the back when we called it the free software community before it got stolen from us by business. Um and we we uh you know, that was sort of the early community that I was involved in. Um and so, yeah, that's just sort of been a. Uh, uh, I, I strive to use uh, and, and contribute to uh, the FOSS community. And we have a lot of problems that we sort of have to worry about now with, you know, maintainer burnout and stuff like that. Um, although I don't agree with most of what comes out about maintainer burnout. Um, if you, yeah, uh, if people are being mean to you, Change the and you don't like it, or you want something different, change the license that's on your software. Yeah. Like,
0: <laughs> well, so, uh, what, what would you have chosen instead of the MIT license?
1: Uh, for our, well, so for our spec, the MIT license was the right one, okay. but uh, because it matches the community. Um, yeah. and that's sort of the difference between the copyleft licenses and what's called the more permissive licenses yeah. is that the copyleft licenses require the things that they touch to also. Uh, be copy left. So what I would have done with RSpec, if you know there weren't community norms to follow, I would have put it under the LGPL, which mm. is any improvements you make to RSpec you that you distribute send back, but you don't have to make your whole thing open if you don't want to. Oh, okay. um, and so that would have been an appro- that would have been an appropriate one. Um, but there's also a lot of you know uh, misunderstanding about what copyleft licenses actually obligate you to do. Yeah. Uh which um even the companies that are producing open source software under those licenses don't understand them.
0: <laughs> so yeah uh, what what's the what's the biggest misconception that you think people should know about? Um
1: the the main one is that copyleft, so GPL AGPL uh licenses, um the Apache license is sort of a Copyleft, but not quite. Um, but the main misconception is that you can't use. Is that uh, commercial use is prohibited by copyleft, and commercial use is absolutely not prohibited by GPL or AGPL or any any of those licenses um, that are considered copyleft licenses. You are absolutely welcome to use those in com- in, in your commercial software. Sometimes you will also have to release the source code to your software, but yeah. these days, because we deliver everything over the internet, even that doesn't apply. Mm. And um, I, when I moved to Sweden, I worked uh, at a graph database company. Uh, well, it's on GitHub. I worked at Neo4j, and they had core their sort of the core version was AG, it was uh, GPL three, and the enterprise edition was AGPL three, and they argued and they told customers. The AGPL means that you have to make your whole system open source if you use uh, our stuff, so you better pay us. And I was telling all the salespeople, actually, you're lying to our customers. That is not a requirement of the AGPL. That's yeah. not written anywhere in the license. It doesn't say that. It never said anything like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so uh, Neil Verjay, I think, ended up just fully closing. Uh, the database, but that's the biggest misconception. MongoDB went the other direction. They uh, MongoDB had the same license that Neo4j had and MongoDB said, here's everything you're allowed to do with this license, and they were absolutely correct to the letter of the license. Yeah. And then they realized they didn't like that, so they made a new license called the SSPL, which is not a free software license. Um, That changes one thing that they were unhappy with. And I applaud them for doing this. They, they chose a license. It didn't meet their needs. They change the license, which they were, which they were, you know, entitled to do, Um, which was a lot better than me having fights at my former employer because they were lying to the users about what the software license was. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, that's the, I I think that's the biggest misconception is, is whether commercial use is allowed or not.
0: Yeah. I I know that, you know, the first few times I've, I, I had created a, repo on GitHub for, you know, public. And they they have the prompt of what license do you want to use? It's like analysis paralysis for a significant amount of time (laughs) (laughs) until you until you slowly learn a lot of that stuff. But uh, yeah, yeah, I I find it interesting because uh, well, also, I I think a a little bit, you know, so so in the I've been looking at a lot of this because um, uh, tools like Copilot and, and Code Whisper, Uh, you know, now have implications of licenses. But one of the interesting things is Code Whisper has a log of every license it uses whenever it generates code for you. Um, So it'll be like, oh, MIT, MIT, uh, GPL. And so uh, I found that very interesting is that even if a large language model is generating code for you to use, you have all the licenses being printed out so you you have to like you know say where 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 you used it from even in that case but that's key yeah yeah, yeah. um it, it's fascinating but it, it's also a difficult thing and i think a lot of a lot of people are are afraid of open source software because of copyleft licenses or the misconceptions around it so i, I find it very interesting yeah that, yeah um, absolutely yeah yeah maybe coming at
2: it from uh more layman's perspective <laughs> in that uh like w- what are some if if you're if you're not an expert in the the law of it because anytime uh sometimes i'll read some of the legal documents of some of these licenses and i just end up very confused
1: <laughs> yeah that's
2: easy. Uh, um, yeah like is there anything any advice you have for someone in that spot who's who's trying to understand the implications of what software they're using and not, uh, but they're having trouble understanding it. Uh, <laughs> Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so basically all, the only question you have to ask is when you want to use a library, uh, that's mm-hmm. one use case. If you want to pull a library into your project, that's the most common use case. Right. The only yeah. question you have to ask, the only question you have to answer is what are my obligations in return, in return for getting this software. Okay. and, um, and then you can just sort of memorize the the Cole's notes on this. If you go to uh, GitHub, and I, I do not like suggesting that GitHub made a good website for this because I think GitHub is a terrible steward in the open source community, uh, but I think they did they did a thing called choosealicense.com, which is heavily biased in favor of permissive licenses, um, less so now than it used to be. Um, but they, but that gives you a good overview of what am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? And what, what are my obligations? Um, Mm. the general rule of thumb is the super permissive licenses like MIT BSD, um, uh, or new BSD, at least, um, you don't do any, you don't have to do anything. Mm. Um, the Apache license, you have to say, I used this, this software contains this other software that was provided under the Apache license. And Uh, And then GPL and AGPL, it depends on your very, very specific use case. But uh, in general, anything that you link to GPL or AGPL stuff, uh, you have to also provide the source code to anything that you've linked to it to downstream. And that one's a little bit more complicated. The short answer to what do I do if I don't know and I don't want to go down the rabbit hole is people can call me. um, And (laughs) I I tend to I do not offer legal advice. I'm not a lawyer. I offer expert advice uh, on on these kinds of things, and I do love I, I do love these these questions about this stuff. Um, I did uh, spend a couple of years as the open source license compliance officer for a um, uh, for a, a, a large mobile company that you've heard of um, that I don't really like to talk about anymore. But uh, yeah, uh, I, so I, I that was my job. I would go through projects. Internal project would send me a Git repo, and they would say, "Hey." Uh, we need to know which licenses we're using and if there are any problems. And mm-hmm. if it's a JavaScript project where they just suck in dependencies like they're like like they're falling from the sky, uh, <laughs> you can very easily have thousands of things that you have to go through and read the dependency the the licenses on. Um, and that's the thing that's that's the thing that's most scary about this is in copyright in many countries the default is all rights reserved. Yeah. And you'll notice the template in Xcode, if you use Xcode, when you create a new file, it says copyright, whatever your name is, all rights reserved. A lot of people put a license on their software, but upload it to GitHub where every file says all rights reserved. That makes the licensing situation very ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Um, Because am I allowed to use this file or does it fall under the project license? How do I know that it falls under the project license? and then some licenses are file-based and some license licenses are project-based. Apache is a file-based license. So you can have a project that's mostly Apache license, but has some other things that are other licenses very, very commonly. Um, and things like that. So there's a whole bunch of analysis that uh that can be done. The automated tooling for it, amusingly, the automated tooling for this is uh that, that's in use in the industry is proprietary software that's very expensive from enterprise vendors. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the open source tooling for figuring out your compliance with open source licenses is very, uh, you, you really do have to wire it together yourself. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that, that,
2: that does help a lot. That does help a lot. Cause, um, yeah, I guess phoning a friend or phoning Stephen <laughs> and then having <laughs> yeah. it broken down into here's your actions if you use this. Song. That, that, that's very helpful to me because anytime I open up the 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 fine prints uh, usually leads to a lot of confusion because I just don't understand what's
1: being said. So that, that, that's very good. Um, cool. They do take some time. Yeah, they do take some yeah. time in rereading and stuff like that. Um, yeah. At various points in my life, I could recite most of the GNU licenses from memory. Um, because, uh, (laughs) but you know, other those things moved out and other things moved in, but I used to have to do this all the time. I used to have to be able to look at a a software project and say, ah, we have to be careful of section six of the GPL pretty sure, or section six of the AGPL is the network linking clause, which is the interesting one. Mm. Um, the one that makes people think that it, that, uh, if you use a database that you have to then release all of your source code. <laughs> That's the weird it's the network use clause. So if you interact with a piece of software over network mm. um that means that the the license applies even though you've spoken to it over a network. Mm. The difference in the case of most databases is what is the license of the driver.
2: Mm.
1: The the thing you use because your application is linking to the driver, the driver is linking to the server. So there's there's added complexity here as well. Mm. Um yeah. <laughs> it's wild.
0: Yeah, so I think people in in the open source community in general you know, I think a lot less can go wrong unless you're copying unlicensed code, right, into a licensed project that can go yes, very wrong. Yeah. Um but but yeah, yeah, I think a reason that those tools are enterprise licensed and are very, very expensive is because the people that really care about it are the ones that are trying to protect their their patents or their copyright terms and yeah uh, on their own software. But yeah, very interesting. I, I think uh, I think this is a very this has been revitalized as a popular topic because of uh, large language models like Chat, you know, GPT and Llama uh, and all the others because. Now you're ingesting when you generate code off of those things, you're ingesting licenses and you have have even less idea of where they came from than the node package manager, (laughs) right?
1: Yeah. Now the node package manager is getting better as much as I hate to say nice things about JavaScript or especially the JavaScript ecosystem, um, because it is a garbage fire. um, The node package management stuff is a lot better when you generate a new package. It has a license line. and and you can there are some tools there's a, a there's an npm package called license checker, yeah. which will go through your JavaScript project and you know those kinds of things are good as sort of like a, a bare bones check. But if you are if you're building your livelihood around something, you probably ought to figure out what your obligations are to the community. Yeah. Um, there yeah. there are a few interesting recent ones. Um, the the JSON library, there's a JSON parsing library that recently had to get rewritten. uh, In the next version of Android, all the JSON parsing has been rewritten from scratch because the license of the previous JSON parser was the Apache license with one line added, this software shall be used for good, not evil. And the (laughs) the Apache Software Foundation said at one point something like, that's clearly a joke. We're going to ignore it and call this an Apache compatible license. And then recently they changed their mind and said, actually, this is ambiguous. So we're going to say it's not Apache compatible anymore, which meant that uh, the Android team had to replace the JSON parsing library with a new one that was clean room implemented, without yeah. any of the code from the previous one. So, uh, yeah, it gets it, it, get, can it get very it can expensive get complicated. very quickly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. yeah. Wow.
2: All right. Yeah. Well. Um, you brought up something earlier that might help, uh, transition to the next topic a little bit, uh, which is you're talking about open source burnout. Um, yeah. Do you mind uh, going into that a little bit? Um, and maybe there's a tie into remote work as well there.
1: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, It's so, so one of the, one of the things that keeps coming up from maintainers of very popular packages is that they're sort of, you know, upset that, you know, millions or or millions of people are using this thing and they're sending me bug reports and they're being mean to me on github and and whatever and i'm not making any money from this and this is one of one of the you know common complaints and it's absolutely you know a, a, a an easy source of burnout if you are you know working uh to to make something and 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 the requirements just outpace your 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 ability to keep up with it and if you're not getting paid for that, then it's taking from your personal life because presumably you have other work that you're doing um, to survive. And it's it's really easy to get caught in that trap. And so when I think that you know, when choosing a license, you have to say, okay, what ways am I okay with people using this and not giving me anything back? And if you release something under the MIT license, And yes, you totally can get rich by making, uh, you know, something permissively licensed um, that's very popular. Um, I never made any money directly off of RSpec, but I definitely built the last, you know, 20 years of my, you know, 15 years of my career, you know, around, you know, largely from companies who used it and wanted help. So, I mean, you know, I definitely didn't get rich from it, but... Uh, it it helped my career, so I don't. And, and I I I was only involved in spec in the early days. Um, when I started getting burnt out on it, I got burnt out on it because I said I have no idea why anybody likes this thing, and uh, I don't understand why people can't just learn that test isn't a bad word. And so I had, and so I just gave it to the next to the most prolific contributor to date, David Shalimsky. and I said, here you run with it because I don't. I don't know what features need to come next because I was done. I, I was done before we released it. So it's definitely something that, but you have to be able to walk away from those things and you have to be, you know, okay with the, you know, the, the ups and downs of both sides. I spent the, you know, RSpec was released in 2005 ish, 2006. I spent the first five years or so after i released it not even admitting that i did because it was you know it just wasn't i I, i've written about this on my blog if people care it's at stephenrbaker.com i've written the whole story of that and how i and you know the complicated feelings i had around the burnout on it but if i had no no need to earn money uh, I would absolutely my dream job would be to build open systems and 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 work on on free software systems um, and for me it's it's largely these days about like a right to repair thing my my political view is that when you buy a car they should also give you a usb stick with all of the source code for every piece of software that's on that car and as well all of the tools you need to build that software so that you can repair your own frigging car. Especially now we have all of these new electric car companies coming out, building these computers into their cars. They're not going to be around for long. There's a whole bunch of new electric cars, car companies out there. Mm. What happens when that company disappears? You know what happens? The same thing that happened when Apple killed the Newton message pad and you couldn't buy hardware, you couldn't buy software for it anymore and you couldn't ins- write your own your your own new software easily because the transition away from classic mac os and stuff the newton message pad happens except it's got four wheels and it takes up your whole driveway
0: <laughs>
1: and that that's the situation that i'm you know i i think that people should take you know should have ownership of the things that they that they rely on and uh, uh free software is really the only way that we can give people ownership of the hardware that they're buying.
2: Yeah. I just felt a lot better about myself because in a, in a ridiculous way, because I'm not very handy and I'm terrible at car mechanics, but maybe the wave of the future is that the software developers are the best car mechanics. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be, I'll become like, you know the neighborhood uh, hero for fixing cars. You know, so right. <laughs> just oh, did you get the did you get the code when they bought yeah, the car? Okay, yeah. great. Bring it over, and then I can fix your car for you. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: plug, plug this into the dashboard.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Oh yeah. wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's let's dive in a
1: little bit into into remote work uh, a little more before we close yeah. the car. Sure. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, remote work is super important to me because I like to live in places that nobody else likes to live. Yeah. So, uh, right now I'm talking to you from my house in the woods in Sweden. Um, if I wanted to buy a bottle of whiskey, it would take me an hour and a half to get to the liquor store. Um,
0: <laughs> very remote work. Yes. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. And, Extra but
1: because I live in Sweden, gigabit fiber, and I think it costs like $30 a month, gigabit synchronous, um, with an isp that doesn't cooperate with the police um so uh it's oh, it's fantastic and by the way since we're friends now uh, we bought the houses are so cheap over here we bought a guest house in the next village it's got a couple of bedrooms you guys are welcome over here you can make it a working vacation on the internet super fast anybody who's watching this drop me an email you can come hang out in sweden at, at another house you don't I don't even like hanging out with myself. So you don't, if you don't like hanging out with me, it's cool. The house is 15 minutes down the road. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And so f- because of that, I, I love remote work. I come from, um, uh, 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 Nova Scotia, Canada. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, Nova Scotia has a long history of high unemployment and, you know, uh, you know, it, it's tough to live there. Uh, and, you know tech jobs didn't come there as fast as they came to other places but because of some of my early work in government in the 2000 in in 2000 to 2002 we got a lot of high speed internet in so people were able to get tech jobs in Nova Scotia um and and then you know later on i wanted to live in cape breton which is an island off of nova scotia and you know when you work remotely you can live anywhere and i don't want to live in a city i don't want to live i want to live you know, in the woods, far out of the way, where I can do my own stuff. You know, and uh, and 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 remote work is what enables that. So, the pandemic came along. Well, for the rest of you, Sweden pretended didn't exist. Everyone starts remote working, and I'm like, "All right, this is." I've been doing this for 20 years. Yeah. Um, now the I've, go-to. <laughs> oh, absolutely! It was fantastic. All it meant for me was suddenly jobs that I that were out of reach before I could now do, if I wanted to.
0: Um,
1: and uh, yeah, so it's, you know, it's, it's really fantastic. Remote work has just been great for that. And I always say, you know, American work office like uh, uh, workplaces, um, you know, can be hugely politically driven and the HR departments are, you know, just always, you know, looking for excuses to justify their existence. And so, you know, if you go to work, you can see people on video chat you can hear them on you know on the video chat uh you uh, you can't touch them because hr you can't smell them and you don't probably don't want to smell your colleagues and so you know what are the other senses right you've already we've already got all the all the all of the main senses covered that you're that you want to do in a workplace anyways so why not just work from home and everyone gets their own environment Um, I get to use whatever keyboard I want. It's fantastic. Uh, If you live in Sweden, the internet never goes down and it's super fast. So it's always somebody else's problem when somebody has a bad connection and I just sit here and twiddle my thumbs and no, it's not my problem. Uh, And it's, it's just fantastic. It's, it's so great to be able to live wherever you want uh, and and work. Um, Yeah. It's, it's just great. I love it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's cool that uh, there are people like you pioneering it before I, I came into it because of uh, the pandemic. And it was such a huge win for me and my family, because uh, it's almost like a return to the family lifestyle before uh, people had to commute to work and factory and all that kind of stuff where you, you know, you kind of were with your family. And so, um, yeah, it, that's just been such a huge win for family. And I mean, even this, what's happening right here, um, where you're in Sweden, (laughs) we're on the West coast and in the States and, uh, we're talking in real time and the ability to do that and then go back to my mob here in, uh, five minutes, uh, we're there in different locations and, uh, you know, to have that combination and that fantastic conversation all happen without, uh commuting in between each of those events is, is super cool. So yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, a big fan great. as well. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. It, oh, it, it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, I, I also take, uh, um, I, t- I take, uh, uh, guitar lessons from an Emmy award-winning bluegrass, uh, folk musician who's in Tallahassee, Florida. And we right. do that because if we can do it remotely and <laughs> so, uh, really? and you know, I just, I can take guitar lessons online. There's, there are no guitar teachers out nine, you know, an hour and a half into the woods in Sweden.
0: Um, so maybe next to the liquor store, that's an hour away. <laughs> right.
1: And, and, and I can get, and I can get like a world famous guitar teacher, you know, beamed into my house, uh, you know, anytime it's, it's fantastic. And I'm really glad that the rest of the world is starting to catch up to to remote working because it's it's great. And with the money you save from commuting and stuff, then you can uh, just hop on a plane and go meet people in yeah. whatever time zone they happen to be in or in every location. So it's great. Nice. Nice. Yeah.
2: Right on. Well, we are uh, about to hit our time box. Um, but before right. we do, is there anything you'd like to share a plug before we close?
1: Yeah. So, um, uh, people can find me on my website, StephenRBaker.com. Um, you can find, you know, my, uh, my, uh, contact info there. I'm SRBaker on Twitter and SRBaker on, uh, Fostadon.org, uh, Mastodon server. So, uh, and, uh, I'm always happy to, uh, to hear from other nerds about what they're talking about. And I really like just helping people with what they're, with what they're working on. Um, And we can do that remotely now so so yeah
2: fantastic well thanks steven so much for being on the show it was a good time Thank you Uh, You loved hearing your passion your thoughts on uh, living documentation free and open source software remote work uh so uh to our audience uh please like and subscribe please share with someone else to kind of spread the passion for these things uh you know I, i myself personally have seen the joys of many of these things and so it's always good to turn up the good and uh, share it. So please do so. Um, We love hearing your feedback on uh, YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, and more. So please send it in. What are your thoughts on these topics? We'd love to hear it. But until next time, uh, have a good one. And mob on, everybody. Bye.
1: Bye. Thanks.